0: You would grab a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is where we'll begin this period of our worship. Mark chapter 8. Thank you, Stephen, for leading us in those songs. I would not know it had I not been studying what I've been studying this week, but whoever wrote that song has been reading Hosea, because that is just almost straight quotations from Hosea as we think about how God heals us and the promise God has if we seek Him. I am so thankful that you're here this morning. We have a number of visitors, as has already been mentioned. We want you to know that you are welcome here. We're happy that you're here and you've chosen to worship with us. We want you to know that we're a group who is committed to just following the New Testament. We want to be Christians like you read about in the New Testaments. We don't have any affiliation with other men. We don't wear any other names other than Christian. If you're interested in what we do, you're interested in being a part of us, we'd love to talk to you more about that. But most of all, thank you for being here uh, this morning. Mark chapter 8 and verse 22, Mark 8 and verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some, brought, some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Just so you know, this is not the sermon about how loving trees is a sin. We already went through that one this morning. This is a strange healing, isn't it? When we study Jesus' healings, there is a tremendous variety. Sometimes he heals with a touch, sometimes with a word, sometimes by the touch of the hem of his garment. Sometimes he spits in mud. Sometimes he says, just go over here and wash. And here he spits on the guy's eyes. But what is intriguing about this healing, what is strange about it, is that the healing at first doesn't seem to take. As he heals him, he says, what do you see? And the man says, I see men like trees walking. Now, I don't have all the answers to what happens here. Some have suggested that This is some kind of comment on the spiritual blindness around him. Some have suggested maybe it's a failure of the man's faith, maybe he has an incomplete faith. But I can say confidently that what we learn from that story is that sometimes healing takes a while. Sometimes it's not instantaneous, even when Jesus miraculously heals someone. And if Jesus' miraculous healing is not always instantaneous, then we shouldn't be surprised when non-miraculous healing Might take a while, too. The Bible repeatedly tells us that God is a healer. That God is like the Son of Righteousness, rising with healing in its wings. That God is the God of all comfort. And I want to take a moment and think about just exactly how that works. I want to talk about how God heals. And the way I want to do that is by looking at some specific case studies in the Bible of people God heals. Now, please don't get the wrong idea. When I talk about healing this morning, even though I know we started with the blind man here, we're not really talking about physical healing. There are examples of that and there are descriptions of that in the Bible. What I want to talk about as we talk about God's healing is what we might call spiritual or emotional healing. Healing that comes when we've been wounded, we've been damaged, especially by other people. And we have to walk the long road back to real emotional and spiritual health. There are people in the Bible just like that. And I believe we can learn a lot from their example. Particularly, I know that in the audience this morning, I'm talking to at least some who are hurting right now. And who are looking at healing as if something, as if it's something that might never happen. And healing feels so distant and so difficult. And it's hard for us in those moments to reach out and trust God. And I want us to see some ways God works so that we can understand a bit about that process and that we can be prepared for the road ahead as we try to escape from those things that have been done to us or those struggles that we have had as we see how God heals. So I want to look at three stories, three case studies, and we're going to see God healing in different ways, just like he heals blind men in different ways in the Gospels. He heals people in different ways throughout the Bible. So let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19 to begin with. The first story is here, 1 Kings 19. Let's talk first about how God heals Elijah. We're going to talk about God healing Elijah through what we're going to call gentle nurture. 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 1. It says, 1 Kings 19, 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So we need to recap here. Elijah had prayed for drought for three years, and it didn't rain for three years. Now, that wasn't just a fun experiment in the power of prayer. He did that so to shake the hearts of the people who had gone after Baal and to try to reach them. So Ahab confronts Elijah, and Elijah suggests Ahab is the king. Elijah says, well, why don't we go and have a contest on Mount Carmel? and whoever is God is truly God, they'll call down fire from heaven and burn up a sacrifice. And so the prophets of Baal are there, and they call out to their God, and they cut themselves. And, of course, nothing happens, because Baal is not a true God. And Elijah calls out after wetting the altar, and God sends down fire from heaven. And the people turn all at once and declare Jehovah is God. And the people turn on the prophets... And they kill the prophets. And then, of course, comes the rain. It hasn't rained for so long. And so there is this mountaintop moment at the end of chapter 18 where Elijah surely feels like, finally, everything I've been waiting for and working for has happened. The people have turned around. God's blessing the land again. The Baal prophets are gone. And then comes chapter 19. And it's as if all the air goes out of the balloon. Because immediately the queen, Jezebel, hears what's happened and says, Elijah, you're dead. So the head is still on the snake, despite all of Elijah's best efforts. And Elijah just runs for his life. He runs south to Judah. He runs to the wilderness. And he prays that God would just kill him. This man is used up. Broken, dispirited, lonely, angry, frustrated. He has given everything to God for years, and he has nothing to show for it. And what we read about in this chapter is how God heals him. So how does God heal him? First of all, look again at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. By the way, God does not answer that prayer. He does not take Elijah's life. Verse 5. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb the Mount of God. So he feeds him and he gives him rest. God wants him to take care of his body. And I think that is repeated here because it is an emphasis. The physical part of us matters, and we often bear the marks of our emotional wounds in our physical bodies. That is, we don't respond well when we are hurt, and often we don't take care of our bodies whether that's through overeating or undereating or through some kind of drug or through some kind of alcohol or caffeine or whatever it is, we just decide this might help. This might make me feel better. We refuse to sleep or we oversleep. We neglect our bodies. And though those things might numb us for a moment, ultimately they end up causing us more problems. They add to the pain because we neglect ourselves and we hurt our physical bodies. And so we have that as an additional burden to the emotional hurts we're carrying. So God does the first thing, and he says, you take care of yourself. And he feeds him, and he gives him the rest he needs because he's got a long way to go. So verse 9, there he's gone to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's Mount Sinai, by the way. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Yours might have the still, small voice. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah has come all the way, hundreds of miles south to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And it's assumed that he has something to say to God. What are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? And so God says, let me hear it. What you got? What's the problem? Verse 10, Elijah tells him. He's ready. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. He doesn't dare accuse God, but you can hear his frustration. God, I'm here. It seems like I care more about you than you do. I'm doing everything for you, but I'm the only one and now they're trying to kill me. Please hear me. God lets him speak. God hears him out. In fact, we're going to see that in all three examples of healing today. God does not say, stop it, hush. He lets these people cry out in their pain and he hears them. And then there is this fascinating description of the great wind tearing the rocks apart, but the Lord, it says, is not in the wind. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. We're going to see in a minute another story when the Lord is in the whirlwind. And that is a terrifying thing. But the point here is that God is not in any of these things that are so frightening and impressive. Instead, he is in the small whisper, the still, small voice. The point here is that God is deliberately gentle with Elijah. He is kind when he does not have to be kind. Verse 13. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive... You shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So again, God asks him, why are you here, Elijah? And again, he gets the same answer. But this time, God responds. And he responds by giving Elijah work. Go work. In other words, you need to get out of here and go all the way back. Now, first of all, you need to go up to Damascus, which is above Israel. And then you need to go to Israel. You've got some anointing to do. Only at the end does God answer Elijah's main complaint. You see that in verse 18? I've left 7,000 men in Israel. So you're wrong, Elijah. You know, you said, I alone am left. And he says, no, that's not so. I know for a fact there are 7,000 others. And you've got work to do that's going to include them and involve them. How does God heal Elijah? He heals him slowly and gently. He He hears him out repeatedly. He takes care of his physical needs. He speaks gently to him when he could have been rough with him. He gives him time. He gives him space. And then, at the right moment, he gives him work. And he gives him, did you notice, some answers, but not all the answers. Some answers that, no, you're not quite alone, but no answers as to why God's allowing Jezebel to continue to live. No answers about the broader plan of God. We need to notice that this took some time. Healing takes time. That's the way God has made us. That's physical healing too, right? You get a cut on your finger, Zach. You get a cut on your finger and what happens? It takes time. Okay, it's going to take time to heal. Emotional wounds take time to heal and we cannot expect instantaneous healing. We also need to notice that God heals Elijah in isolation because the main issue is between Elijah and God. Now he wants him to go back to the people and he's going to send him back. But there are some things that are just between us and God. People can help us, but people don't resolve the central question between me and God. And so God heals Elijah with what I'm going to call gentle nurture, redirecting, reassuring, comforting. I want you to go with me now to the book of Job chapter 1. Let's see another example of how God heals. Job chapter 1. Let's talk about how God heals Job. We're going to call this healing by hard lessons. Now, Job suffers in a horrible way. We learn that it's because Satan believes Job won't serve God if he has to suffer. And so God allows Satan to take his oxen and his donkeys and his sheep and his camels and his children. And Satan seems to stage this in such a way that it appears to be an act of God. That is, it all comes all at once, one after the other two separate raiding parties, fire from heaven, a great wind. All of this is to make Job think God must have done it. And so when Job gets all of this news in the same day that he has lost so much, Job chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I tell you, if you can go through a day like that and end it like that, you've done well. We might even say Job passes the test at this stage, but Satan is not done because Satan brings round two where Job is afflicted with sores all over his body and you have this pathetic picture of him sitting in ashes to get some relief and scraping himself with a piece of pottery. In Job chapter 2 and verse 9, Job 2 and verse 9, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Just curse God and God can finish the job and just kill you. Verse 10, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So even when his wife turns on him, even when his wife says, why are you still worried so much about God? Just give it up. Job doesn't curse God. I imagine that most of us are familiar with the book of Job. The heart of the book of Job is a series of speeches that begins in chapter 3 and goes basically till the end of the book. Where Job is visited by three friends, you might put friends in quotes three guys who come to him and are supposed to be comforting him and their basic message is job you totally deserve what you've gotten you must have done some really bad stuff to suffer like this which is pretty comforting right and so job defends his integrity and I'm impressed by the fact that job is a long book God lets them talk a lot they talk a lot all of them and they've got a lot to say about themselves and about job and about God There is one part, though, that creeps in as you study Job's speeches, where Job begins to say, I would really just like to talk it out with God. I want God to give me some good reasons why this has all happened. God knows that I haven't done anything to deserve this, so he shouldn't have done this to me. And so Job begins to get, we might even say, a little proud in his suffering, where he knows God hasn't done right by him. And so God lets them speak for a long time, and finally he speaks to Job. Let's look in Job 38. Job 38. God himself enters into the speaking. And I want you to notice there are no still small voices here, no low whispers. God answers Job out of the whirlwind. Job chapter 38 in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, the whole speech goes on like this. In fact, he interrupts just for a moment in chapter 40, and Job says, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and God does not stop. God keeps going. It is questions that belittle Job and essentially say, who do you think you are to question me? Job needs to remember his place, and that is a very hard lesson for a hurting person to learn. Turn the page to Job 42. Job 42. Finally, I I don't know if the whirlwind stops. I don't know exactly how this happens. But Job responds to God in 42 in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job gets the lesson. He understands that I have misunderstood my relationship to God. I am sorry. Now I see you. In fact, I think that's important. Job sees God in a new way after this process where there are lessons he has learned and grasped in a much deeper way. God is bigger and wiser than he imagined before he suffered. Of course, God rebukes those other three friends for their wrong words about him. Then look in verse 10, Job 42 and verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him. Hey, we've been waiting for that, right? And comforted him for all the evil that God had brought upon him, that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So God blesses Job. God restores his fortunes. And now he has people who really do comfort him. So how does God heal Job? He heals him. By teaching him hard lessons. Lessons that it is not possible for him to learn without hurting. He takes Job's pain and he strikes while the iron is hot. While his heart is tender. And he says now is the time for him to learn something. And so Job grows from his pain. Notice again that it mostly happens in isolation. That really it's about Job and God. Even though his friends are there... They're not really helping Job. They're not really comforting Job. And yet God does want him to have some comforters soon after. So you have fundamentally, like Elijah, it's about Job and God and the healing God can provide. Now here is what I want to say about this. Job's story alerts us to a really unique and important danger. And the danger is that we can become proud in our pain that we can grow to a point where we feel that we can look down on the people who have hurt us or we can think, I would never do something like that. We can begin to question God. How could God let things like this happen? This isn't fair. God isn't right. As if the fact that we can't think of a reason for God to let something happen means that there isn't a reason. Sometimes we need to learn a lesson like Job where we let God be God. And instead, we don't become proud. We become trusting. So how does God heal Job? Well, he hears him out. And he speaks forcefully to him and humbles him. And then he comforts him and restores his fortunes. Sometimes God heals us by teaching us hard lessons. Lessons that are burned into our hearts through the pain they've caused, or the fear they've produced or the anger we felt in our pain. And God can use those times. That is not the same as saying that we deserve the pain. Job did not deserve the pain. It's saying that when God feel, and when it feels like God is harder with us than he is with Elijah, it may be because there's something we can learn from what we are experiencing. Now, can I add a word of caution? Please, please don't say that to a hurting person. Please don't go to them and say, well, you probably had something to learn. That's probably why this happened. I'm going to encourage us to be better comforters than Job's friends, where we don't add to pain by trying to throw solutions that we don't know anything about. But for our own hurts, the question we can ask, the question that Job teaches us to ask, is how can I emerge from my pain stronger and better and more faithful? The question is, what can I learn here? I don't believe that Job suffered in order to learn a lesson, but I do believe God used Job's suffering to teach him lessons. So that's how God heals Job. I want to look at one more story. I want to talk about Joseph for a few minutes. Let's go over to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. I want to talk about how God heals Joseph through what we're going to call gradual realization. Genesis 37. So Joseph's brothers were terribly jealous of him. He had a lot of brothers. So them being jealous was a big deal. Most of that was attributable to the fact that Jacob had married Rachel and Leah because Laban had tricked him. And through that deception, there became a great animosity in the family that passed down to the next generation. But it comes to really be a part of Joseph's life, a disaster here. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 18. Genesis 37 and verse 18. It says, they saw him from afar. This is his brothers. Before they came near, before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, so that that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming up from Gilead with their camels with them with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. It's a pretty cold-blooded statement. When Judas says, what are we going to get out of it if we just kill him? Why not make some money and let somebody else kill him? These are his brothers. This is a tragedy. At 17 years old, Joseph is conspired against by his brothers and sold into slavery. And so down he goes to Egypt where he's sold in the slave market. Down he goes to Potiphar's house. And the text keeps telling us, everywhere Joseph goes, Jehovah was with him. Jehovah was with him. So when he goes to Potiphar's house, he becomes very influential and important in Potiphar's house because he does such good work. And yet, it seems as though every time he takes a step forward, it's two steps back. Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him. Then she levies some false accusations against him when he refuses. And so even though he wants to serve God... And his master, he's thrown into prison. He interprets dreams and waits and waits in prison. But the Lord is with him. He is called out of prison by Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And suddenly, he goes from rags to riches. He's second in the kingdom. And he finally can probably begin to see some purpose in his life. Maybe all of this, surely he thinks was leading me to this point. I want you to look with me in Genesis 41. Genesis 41 and verse 50. The naming of children in the Bible is very often a statement about where the emotional state of the parents are. Genesis 41 and verse 50. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said... God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So you see that Joseph still has in mind what happened. He hasn't forgotten, but he sees God as moving and past it. He has blessed me in spite of my affliction. And then, as Joseph is beginning to get a handle on everything that's happened to him, just imagine he's probably... In his early thirties at this stage. Then his brothers come down to Egypt to buy a grain. And he faces them again. And my interpretation of all the things that happen. I know Kirk taught a class on Joseph uh, just last quarter. Uh, my interpretation of all that happens. Is that Joseph is just a mess. When he sees his brothers. I don't think he has great plans. I don't think he knows what he's doing. I think he's a basket case. So he says, where's Benjamin? And he hangs on to Simeon until they bring Benjamin to him. Then when Benjamin comes, he sends him away, but he plants a cup in his sack. And then finally, he just says, you know what? I'm just going to tell them. I want you to see that with me in Genesis 45. Genesis 45. When Judah stands up for Benjamin, he tears up. He can't control himself anymore. Genesis 45 and verse 4. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph sees it. He says, this is what it was all about. God sent me here. You tried to, but it's not about you. It's about God. Now, probably Joseph had felt some sense of closure and distance before he saw his brothers. You know, he is second in Egypt. He's got all of this grain. He's collecting. He's got a job. He's got a wife and family. Probably he says, you know what? That's just a past chapter in my life. But when he sees his brothers again, he has to face what's happened and some new realizations come upon him. Maybe what God was doing was bringing me into this position for a reason that had to do with the people that are my family that God had made promises to. Piece by piece, movement by movement, Joseph puts the puzzle together. He makes sense of the broader story. And when we read what we read in Genesis 45, which he repeats again in Genesis 50, Joseph is healed. He is done with this process. He can weep with his brothers. He can sincerely forgive them. He can take care of them. It's in the past now. And the most remarkable thing is that Joseph is able to do it because Joseph sees what God was doing through the whole process. And he got there gradually, day after day, week after week, year after year. How does God heal Joseph? Remember, Joseph, just like the other two, is isolated through this process. God is with him, but God is silent. But the process is not complete. Please hear me. The process is not complete until he can face his brothers. He's not done until he can go to them and face what's happened with their help. God heals Joseph by letting him succeed physically, even while he's healing him. God heals Joseph by helping him forget about it, at least for a while. God heals Joseph by forcing him to face his emotions when the time comes. God heals Joseph by bringing him closure. God heals Joseph by allowing him to grasp the bigger plan. And I take comfort in Joseph's story. Because it seems to me that big plans are revealed gradually. And we can only begin to get a glimpse of what God has been doing slowly as we move past in time and we look backwards. And we begin to see maybe this is what God's been up to all along. So, these are three examples of how God heals. And they're very different. God heals Elijah with gentle nurture. God heals Job with hard lessons. God heals Joseph with gradual realization. And each one of those is unique. I said in the beginning, when Jesus heals people, he heals in a lot of different ways. No two healings are the same for Jesus. No two people are the same. And God doesn't deal with any two people the same way. And so I would say, there are probably many more ways God heals for us today. But I want us to see that in that variety, we can see some constants. First of all, Healing will take time. It won't be instant. For none of these men was it instant. For some, it was much longer than others. And yet for each one, it was not something that they could just say, just do this, just take this pill, just go here, just say this, and it'll all get better. We can expect healing to take time. And in fact, we have to learn to be on God's timetable with that, to acknowledge where we are in that process. Second, Healing will make God real to us. I am deeply impressed by this in these stories we've read. Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Here is Joseph. Here is Joseph saying, God did this. God sent me here. God's trying to provide for you. You meant evil against me, but God turned it into good. Here is Elijah who is finally able to see this is not just about me. It's not just about me versus Jezebel. It's not just about me versus the prophets of Baal. This is about a God who is going to take care of me and is never going to leave his people without witness and without a remnant. And so likewise with you and me. As we look back on the hurts of our lives and we see that those hurts aren't permanent that God can help us move past those things and become different people and learn things and become stronger. What we see is God's been with us the whole time. And it makes God real to us because God's presence is burned into us through the pain of what we've been through. We learn that healing will fundamentally be between us and God. I'm going to have some things to say about this in just a moment, but... While God encourages us to live in community, you cannot ignore the fact that in all of these examples, God is dealing directly with the person. Because very often, when we suffer, there is a new connection forged between us and God. Something changes, and our connection grows deeper with God, and we have to learn, maybe this is what the Bible is really about, and we begin to read the Bible in a new and fresh way. I have to say this. I cannot preach this lesson without talking about it. This is precisely the way I feel about the things that I've gone through. Where the Bible has come alive as I've learned what it means to suffer and hurt. Because the Bible has told me that God has a plan for these things. And that what I'm enduring is just what many people have endured before me. And that especially when I suffer because of my sin or the sins of others... That God has told me those things are sin for a reason. And they are bad for us. And they need to be avoided. So healing will be fundamentally between us and God. And then the last thing is that healing will not answer all of our questions. None of these guys get out of it with saying, you know, I have a full understanding now. Joseph may be the closest. But Joseph only gets a little part of the really big picture. And so with you and me, we'll learn some things from our healing. We'll get some of our questions answered. But at the end of the day... We'll have to learn to trust God for the rest. Can I add this? All three of these stories take place in the Old Testament. And New Testament Christians have a blessing that these three men didn't have. That is, we enjoy the sense of community and the expectation that we can share our pain with our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can bear one another's burdens that we can comfort one another, that we can refresh one another, that we can encourage one another. We are not alone. So while healing is fundamentally between us and God, it is never to be done in isolation when we have brothers and sisters who can help us. And so I want to encourage those who are hurting to be sure you share that with others who can be a support and an encouragement to you. That's the way God has planned the local church. God is the God of all comfort. He can heal us all. The question is, do you need healing this morning? Do you need forgiveness of your sins? Do you need God's presence and God's purpose in your life? We take this time to offer an invitation so that if there is some need in your life that you want to make known to us that we can help you with, particularly if you need to become a disciple of Jesus, a child of God, and you're ready to turn away from your sins, to be baptized into Christ, and have those sins washed away, This would be the time for you. If you have a need, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.